Welcome to the Air Medical Today podcast. My name is Edward Ero, and I am your host for Episode 2 on December 17th, 2009. This podcast is part of the Eero Podcast Network, podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. Air Medical Today is published throughout the year, and with each episode, we explore news and information, government and policy decisions, historical events, and a specific area of the air medical industry community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast is also indexed on iTunes under Air Medical Today. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Today's guest is Dr. Bill Gerard, Chief of Emergency Medicine at Palmetto Health Richland Hospital in Columbia, South Carolina the medical director of the LifeNet South Carolina Air Medical Program and Richland County EMS, and finally, the founder and CEO of Rescue 911 Solutions. Before I introduce Dr. Gerard, I want to talk about some feedback I have received from episode one of the podcast and then cover some recent air medical transport news. First, I really want to encourage listeners to call the Air Medical Today phone line or send an audio file to the email address to provide feedback, ask questions, or if you have suggestions for future guests. I will be putting selected voice messages on the podcast itself, so this is a great way to have your voice heard on the show. As far as feedback from episode one, I did hear from a number of listeners, and one being my 15-year-old son, Jake. He said that, Dad, you need to not be so stiff when you're doing the news section, and that uh, I was a lot looser during the interview portion. Well, I thank you, Jake, and as I will work on that, and I guess my question to you is, what did you not get done when, with your schoolwork when you were listening to the podcast, as I know you're behind? Hmm. I had another listener say that the podcast was a bit long. Like with my other podcast, I prefer an interview style that is more NPR-ish, as I like to go into detail so that the listeners not only learn more about an issue, product, or service, but that they also learn about the person being interviewed. I know from doing several podcasts now that I have discovered things about people I have known for years that I had not realized. So yes, the podcast will be from one to one and a half hours. I had several folks contact me regarding links not working and generally just not being able to get to the podcast. It seems that the problems I helped troubleshoot were all on the Windows side and possibly also DNS server issues in a couple of cases. I have put a new link on the website that takes you right to iTunes, which is the largest index of podcasts of the many that exist out there. By subscribing, the podcast will automatically download so there's no clicking involved when future episodes are available. So I highly recommend that you do that. 
If you are not into listening to podcasts, I will tell you about my story. I discovered this wonderful world about three and a half years ago when my oldest son, Alex, went off to college. He got a new iPod with his new MacBook Pro for studies and then gave me his old iPod. And it is at that time through surfing through the iTunes store that I found all the free podcasts that are out there on almost every subject matter. I now do most of my listening to the news in several areas that I am interested in exclusively via podcast. I'm probably preaching to those listening now, but tell your friends that shy away from this media form to give it a try, as I really do think they will like it. Whether it be when you are working out, driving, or as background while working on your computer, I have found podcasts to be a real enrichment to my life and why I have in turn created Air Medical Today. Let's talk about some recent news affecting the air medical world. The big story that continues to be at the top of the news is healthcare reform, and now it seems to be Democrat versus Democrat on some of the provisions in the Senate bill, which has yet to be, be passed as of uh, this broadcast. Uh, with just days remaining to prove that they can meet a self-imposed Christmas deadline and pass President Obama's signature in this initiative through the Senate, Democrats were seeking a rendezvous with history instead detoured into an intra-party brawl. Majority Leader Reid of Nevada was poised to release the latest version of the Senate legislation as early as this Friday, but it was unclear what kind of reception he'd get. Labor leaders said the bill was soft on the insurance industry, and the former party chairman, Howard Dean, said he'd vote against it if he were a senator. All eyes were on the only known Democratic holdout, moderate Senator Ben Nelson of Nebraska, whose primary concern is the abortion funding restrictions in the bill, which he feels are too lax. Nelson indicated Thursday he was still not happy, but would keep talking with Reed, who needs the 60 votes to push through Republican opposition to the bill and a filibuster. Nelson, the most conservative Democrat in the Senate, said that without modifications, the language concerning abortion is not sufficient. The second-term Nebraskan opposes the procedure and wants tighter restrictions written into the bill. Any hope of the bill's supporters had of a Republican casting a critical 60th vote vanished when Senator Olympia Snow of Maine said after a meeting with Obama that the Democrats that the Democrats' timetable for a pre-Christmas vote was totally unrealistic. Liberals now are furious over the compromises that Reid had to make to keep the bill alive. Gone is a government insurance plan modeled on Medicare. So is the fallback, which was an option allowing aging baby boomers 55 and over to buy into Medicare. The major benefits of the bill would start for three won't start for three or four years, then they will be delivered through private insurance companies only. Overall, the legislation is designed to extend coverage to millions who lack it. Ban insurance company practice, practices such as denying coverage because of pre-existing conditions and slow the rise in medical spending nationwide. The bill would require most Americans to purchase insurance, and it includes hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies to help lower middle-class uh, 
lower the cost for middle-class families. The bill would cover an additional 30 million people and put into motion a range of experiments that may yet to succeed in slowing that growth in health care costs. Politically powerful labor unions panned the Senate bill, but stopped short of calling for its demise, saying they hoped lawmakers ultimately would approve it. The AFL-CIO, the nation's largest labor federation, and the Service Employees International Union both express deep disappointment. The Senate bill includes a tax on high-cost insurance plans that the unions fear would hurt their members. SEIU President Andy Stern scolded Obama, saying that the president should remember his campaign promise to bring change to America. And AFL-CIO President Richard Trumpka said the Senate bill bends towards the insurance industry. Both union chiefs said they hoped the bill that finally emerges from Congress would reflect the House passed measure, which incorporates a government insurance option and admitted the insurance tax. That source was from the Associated Press. On FAA reauthorization legislation, both the House and Senate have signed off on an FAA funding bill that extends funding for the agency through March 31, 2010, or for an an another three months. The FAA had, has been operating under such extensions since 2007, when its last long-term authorization expired. Aviation advocacy groups that have been lobbying for reauthorization and fighting against user fee proposals had hoped that the new administration and a new administrator would help to push through a longer-term plan before the end of this session. The FAA has been operating under a string of short-term extensions for over two years, said Senator Jerry Costello, Democrat from Illinois and chair of the Senate Aviation Subcommittee. Short-term extensions and uncertain funding levels can be disruptive to the aviation industry and communities because they do not allow them to plan for long-term growth. Frankly, every month that goes by without a long-term FAA authorization is a lost opportunity to improve aviation safety, security, and to create and maintain jobs around the country, said Costello. The bill does provide funding for the Airport Improvement Program and authorizes funding to be continued at current levels for most FAA operations. Current aviation taxes are also extended. The bill would still require White House approval to take effect. And that source was from AV Webb. President Obama signed into law this week an appropriations bill to fund health and human services and other agencies for physical year 2010. With that funding, it has provided additional funds to, to eliminate fraud, waste, and abuse in health care and to cut down on health care-associated infections. The legislation totaling $163.5 billion includes more than $1.1 billion, a 50% increase from 2009 to reduce improper payments, fraud, and abuse. The funds in part, will be used to expand the HHS Healthcare Fraud and Abuse Control Program. Public health also got a boost, $6.8 billion, or $128 million above 2009 figures, to help the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention collect core data on the health status of the population and other projects such as HIV testing, global immunization, and cancer prevention and control. 
The bill allotted $190 million, $28 million more than that was appropriated in 2009 to continue the HHS campaign to reduce healthcare-associated infections that patients acquire while receiving medical or surgical treatment. This includes $136 million to invest in the CDC's Emerging Infectious Diseases Portfolio to help expand surveillance, public health research, and prevention activities. In addition, the CMS will be receiving $347 million, $54 million above 2009 levels, to enhance state inspections in nursing homes and other facilities where healthcare-associated infections are rising. And that source was from Modern Healthcare. A big article this week was uh, titled, Air Ambulances Leave Some with Sky-High Bills, and that cost ranged from $12,000 to $25,000 a flight. Craig Yale from Air Methods Corporation was quoted in the story as saying, you're paying for the capacity to be able to respond after uh, the article dealt with a number of patient stories about their high costs. Costs uh, include aircraft that can range from $2 million to $6 million, onboard medical equipment that includes $10,000 in heart monitors and the price of round-the-clock staffing with top-tier emergency doctors nurse, and nurses who must not only be highly trained but also be able to operate at a moment's notice under the most difficult circumstances. Also, jet fuel prices fluctuate widely, as we all know. Dr. Kevin Hutton from Golden Hour Data Systems and also an emergency physician said that we've got to collect enough money for the service or the service goes out of business. Medical helicopters and airplanes are paid only when they transport people, typically a base fee to launch an aircraft and then a fee for every loaded mile it flies. We've been forced to pay for those services with the few unfortunate people who need it, said Dr. Hutton. About 40% of the patients who require emergency air transport have some kind of private health insurance, but about only 60% of insurers pay the full cost. Some insurers pay as little as $300 out of a $17,000 bill, for instance. Others can stall on payment, forcing air transport companies to bill and rebill. Federal Medicare and state Medicaid patients account for another 40% of those treated, but reimbursements from the agencies is notoriously low, requiring 40% discount according to Air Methods tax records. Of the 20% of remaining patients who have no insurance or other coverage, only about 2% actually pay, with the rest written off to uncompensated or charity care, according to Dr. Hutton. If a given flight costs 7000 an ambulance operator has to charge 14000 to make up for the people who don't pay, uh, and then discounts for Medicare and Medicaid and reluctant insurers, said uh, Craig Yale. You've got to, in essence, charge twice, he said. Such logic is questionable, said Candy Butcher, chief executive of Billing Advocates of America, an agency that helps patients renegotiate high medical fees. It's just another justification for spiking prices when patients are at their most vulnerable, she said. We are all willing to pay for fair and reasonable prices for services, Butcher said. The problem is is when people try to price gouge with astronomical markups. 
Hiking the prices for per-transport fees can leave hard-hit families struggling to pay. Air medical services are called to about 20% of the scenes of serious motor vehicle crashes, according to one year's in 2000, uh, which was a study done in Massachusetts. Nationwide, severe car accidents cause 500,000 hospitalizations, more than 250,000 serious injuries, and 42,000 deaths a year in the U.S., and that's according to the Association of Aeromedical Services. Such crashes are a common cause of medical debt that now contributes to more than 60% of all U.S. bankruptcies, according to Dr. Steffi Woolhandler, a Harvard University researcher who has studied the issue. Although researchers don't ask specifically about air ambulance rides, they may well have contributed to that growing number, she said. Despite big bills, some patients say that air medical transport and the care that follows is priceless. David Snyder of Urbana, Ohio, was uninsured last February when his seven-year-old son Hayden was kicked in the face by a horse at their family farm. The air ambulance care flight was on the scene within five minutes, quickly stabilizing the boy whose face was split from his eyes to his upper lip. The bill for the 10-minute flight to the hospital was 9200 Ohio's state Medicaid program covered the cost, reducing the more than 38000 in total emergency care and plastic surgery debts that have left the family struggling. That's a lot of money, said Snyder, but at the time, I would have paid 100000 uh, to get him to the hospital. And that article from uh, MSNBC, and we'll probably be seeing... Uh, more on that issue. In other news, uh, Sikorsky Aircraft Corporation presented $35,000 donation to the Medevac Foundation International in its third in a series, which completed its total pledge of $105,000 and bringing it into the foundation's chairman's circle of donors that uh, provide $100,000 or more. The research and education of air medical transport programs is helping realize Igor Sikorsky's vision of the helicopter as a vital life-saving aircraft, said Sikorsky's regional sales manager, David Gruppi. Our donation will assist our future leaders as they continue to strengthen this vital mission in alignment with our mission to pioneer flight solutions that bring people safely home everywhere, every time. Medevac Foundation International Chair Kevin Hutton said that this funding goes a long way towards achieving the mission and vision of the foundation, which is to empower people and organizations to make a difference in medical transport across the globe and to advance medical transport worldwide through research, education, outreach, and charitable services. That source was from the Association of Air Medical Services. In England, the lives of an air ambulance crew and a seriously injured uh, patient were put at risk by someone shining in a laser pen at the pilot of a Warwickshire and Northamptonshire air ambulance in England. The pilot reported that the high-powered beam had obscured the flight instruments and the pilot's view several times. The aircraft did manage to land safely at University Hospital Coventry and Warwickshire, The ambulance service said a laser pen had been shown by someone sitting in a car parking close to the hospital's landing pad at about 1,500 
GMT this past Wednesday. It was done, apparently, at both takeoff and landing. Steve Porter, the air operations manager, said this is a very really serious matter. Not only is this childish prank putting lives at risk, it is difficult for the pilots to see, but it also adds valuable time onto a life-saving mission as we try to land the helicopter and transfer seriously ill patients to further care. And that source was from the BBC News. Back to the states, uh, in Washington state, Apollo MT, a membership program for emergency medical transportation in Alaska, has announced a program available to all residents of the state of Washington. Apollo MT, which is a a bit different than the membership programs being offered by Airlift Northwest from Seattle and Northwest MedStar in Spokane, is fully licensed insurance brokerage. Dr. Eric Sterling is the company founder and co-owner. He was the previous owner and operator of Guardian Flight in Alaska. Apollo MT has just under 10,000 members in Alaska, and now the program is in the process of being introduced in Washington and apparently 10 other states, which were not mentioned in the story. Sterling asserts that the Washington State Department of EMS states that there are over 300,000 ground ambulance transports a year. That equals one per every 21 people in this state. There are 11,000 air medevacs in one year. Most insurance companies do not pay full for these prices. Apollo pays for both air and ground transport, which further distinguishes it from the two membership programs in Washington. The program covers any person regardless of pre-existing illness, insurance status, or age. Coverage is active three days after sign-up, and has been approved by the Washington State Insurance Commissioner. That source is the Kitsap Peninsula Business Journal. Remember, this and other news and information can be located by following Air Medical Today on Twitter and becoming a fan on Facebook. The Twitter feed is more comprehensive than the Facebook postings, But the Twitter feed can also be seen on the Facebook page under the RSS slash blog tab. It is delayed, however, due to network issues with Facebook. Today I am interviewing Dr. Bill Gerard, who is the medical director for both LifeNet South Carolina and also the Richland County EMS system. In addition, Dr. Gerard is the Chief and Director of Professional Services for the Department of Emergency Medicine at Palmetto Health Richland in Columbia, South Carolina. He is a former president of the South Carolina College of Emergency Physicians and is an active member of numerous pre-hospital and emergency medicine societies. Dr. Gerard is the founder and CEO of RSQ 911 Solutions. Bill attended the Ohio State University for undergraduate studies and the Medical College of Ohio for medical school. He did his emergency medicine residency through the University of South Carolina at Richland Hospital, and post-residency, he has been working at Richland Hospital since 1995. Earlier this year, he finished a master's in medical management from the University of Southern California. 
Bill is a diplomat in the American Board of Emergency Medicine, a fellow in the American College of Emergency Physicians, and the American Academy of Emergency Medicine, as well as a certified physician executive. He holds several honors, including the South Carolina EMS Medical Control Physician of the Year in 1998, and then again in 2005, and the Emergency Medicine Attending Physician of the Year for 2001-2002. I personally had the opportunity to work with Dr. Gerard when he was the Medical Director of CareForce, and I was the Interim Program Director as part of my duties at MedServe Management Services. CareForce, which was affiliated with the Palmetto Health Richland Hospital and LifeReach with Providence Hospital, merged in 2005 to form LifeNet of South Carolina. They are owned and operated by Air Methods Corporation under their LifeNet division. Bill is from the Cleveland area of Ohio and now lives in Columbia, South Carolina with his wife and two children. Bill was one of the best medical directors I have had the opportunity to work with over the years, as he is full of ideas and has a tremendous amount of energy. We are going to talk to him about a new and exciting product that he has developed called Rescue 911 Solutions. Welcome to the podcast, Bill. Hey, Ed. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to talk with you. It's great to have you on the show, and as always, uh, a pleasure uh, talking with you. It was uh, fun seeing you at the AMTC this year. Yeah, it was a really good time out there in San Jose. So, Bill, we're going to go into a little uh, background about yourself. What guided you to be a physician in the first place? Well, I think it was all the uh, orthopedic injuries I sustained during my athletic activities (laughs) in high school. I uh, went under the knife a few times, uh, broke my arm, Five times, I think, had a couple of knee surgeries before I got out of high school. And uh, now that's something I never knew. <laughs> I was uh, I got pretty familiar with the healthcare system before I went into college, and uh, that's kind of pointed me toward the direction of healthcare. Did you play organized sports, football, baseball type of thing? Football and uh, basketball. I see. Wow, that's what I always say about these. I always learn something new because we've known each other for years, and I, I did not know that. Were you? Uh, thinking of orthopedics when you went into medical school or yeah actually that's what i was thinking of uh, i did shadow my orthopedic surgeon and he wanted me to learn how to take care of myself anyway had anything happened in the future he was kind of giving me a little internship he said so i could set my own arm and be my own physician i'd say <laughs> so so then what guided you into emergency medicine well, when I got into medical school and started doing the different rotations, I really liked everything. Uh, so it got to be tough. I knew I didn't want to be an orthopedist then. I, I enjoyed pediatrics and I enjoyed uh, obstetrics and trauma. And every time I found myself in the emergency department, dealing with the higher acuity, the intense decision making uh, that was going on down there, I said, well, I could, I could add it all together and do a little bit of everything and incorporate that into critical care and become an emergency physician. I see. Bill, you've been in South Carolina since your emergency residency program. Why did you decide to stay, being that you are an Ohio native? Well, first, I knew um, leaving Ohio and coming here, I actually probably should start off with and tell you a little bit of history behind that, because I had every intention of, of 
spending my career practicing in Ohio uh, since all my family is from Cleveland. But mm-hmm. I thought it'd be interesting to get outside of Ohio and, and train somewhere else. So I wouldn't be so inbred, kind of see how things are done, um, done differently in another part of the country, see if there's anything to, to learn, bring back any pearls or words of wisdom. And uh, Columbia is, is right at the end of I-77. It starts in Cleveland and ends in Columbia, South Carolina. I interviewed all over the country, most heavily in the uh, Midwest and Southeast, and really liked it here. And um, I enjoyed the people, uh, the city, the university, uh, the geography, the proximity to other areas. Uh, my family really enjoyed coming down here. It's not a place you could leave after you live here a couple of years. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, I know from working with you, it's uh, uh, a great town. And you're right. You can what, get to Cleveland in how many hours driving? Yeah, it's a little under nine. And, and you start talking about how close the mountains are and how close yeah. the beaches are. And uh, uh, it's it's fantastic. So what attracted you to then EMS, both with you know ground initially and then with air? Uh, it happened to be when I was in medical school, I lived down the street from a uh, from an EMS station, and I did the first elective actually in pre-hospital care at my medical school. Um, just went down there and hung out a little bit because I was just curious about it, knowing I wanted to be an emergency physician and ended up getting to know uh, some of the people down there, eating some meals with them and uh, riding along, uh, uh, doing some ride-alongs, and actually mm-hmm. wrote up a little proposal to the dean and did the first pre-hospital elective in my medical school. Wow. So I really, uh, back, I guess, as a third-year medical student, um, uh, got attracted to pre-hospital care. I see. And then how about uh, on the air side? Well, being a Clevelander, I've always had a, <laughs> you know, a fascination for yeah. Metro. You know, they used to buzz over my house all the time. And, uh, you know, that was always, uh, you know, they were very, uh, very looked highly upon in our community. And that was just something I always had an aspiration that's always seemed to be the, the, the top level. So it was fortunate enough to be involved in a hospital that ended up going that route and get involved in air medical transport. Right. Well, I know uh, from working with you at CareForce, uh, receiving timely and accurate feedback on how well each transport went both from a clinical perspective and a customer service standpoint, standpoint is very important to you. I guess tell our audience how this vision and inspiration drove the development of Rescue 911 Solutions. Well, it's one of those issues where, um, you know, the uh, flight crew goes out there. They're, you know, obviously, as everybody knows, very independent and um and then it's 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 you read the documentation and and things always seem to be going perfectly when in reality that always isn't the uh, isn't the situation and you know as time goes by, went by and I got some experience as a medical director you would see that call volume would drop off in certain places or we would be going to counties that were out of our really our service range and maybe into somebody else's and then when we do the obligatory uh, donut or pizza rounds once a month and and ask how everybody was doing. And it seemed like, you know, it would take two or three months to find out that there were some interpersonal skill uh, mm-hmm. issues, some interactions that really didn't go quite well. And here we are now, 90 days, 60 days out of that, where, you know, things that could have been changed, questions could have been answered, uh, relationships could have been repaired in that critical 24 to 48 hours. And I, it took me years to figure out how to get my handle, to get a handle on that. 
Yeah, I know from working with you, that was always something that you wanted right away. I also uh, remember it, it was actually post Care Force days sitting in a restaurant with, with you in Columbia, um, and you were in graduate school at the time, that this actually came out of a, a from a professor, and you talked about the thing called pain, and it's all in caps. Explain what that is. Yeah, I went to the University of Southern California and had an entrepreneurship class a couple of years ago, and uh, the professor there, Tom Amelia, you know, came out one day and said, you know, really think about, you know, you need to do a project. What it really is your pain? What keeps you up at night? Um, and I went home and kind of sat around and thought about it for a while, and, uh, you know, I still didn't know how to fix it, but the accountability piece and getting immediate feedback and getting... Uh, timely, accurate information about quality and interpersonal skills about the pre-hospital crew, uh, which is getting more and more important as the environment changes over the years. Uh, it, it, that's what that was my pain. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us, uh, you know, briefly. I, I have a lot of questions for you, but you know, an overview. What is Rescue 911 Solutions, and and how do you come up with the name too? Well, Rescue 911 Solutions is a really a web-based um, customer satisfaction uh, measuring tool. Uh, again, it is web-based. And when you talk about customers in air medicine, there you know there are numerous customers. Obviously, the patients are first and foremost, and and a lot of people do patient surveys. But if you really go ahead and look back, I mean, it really is the referring hospital or EMS, and really the accepting. Uh, or receiving hospital that are customers. And I thought, what a great idea if I could come up with a way to, in every transport, measure three different interactions uh, that the medical crew has with these various uh, providers. So I created a way to use a computer-generated serial number to uh, have a place where these different providers could access the website and access RSQ911 and do a brief questionnaire and add comments in and uh, their concerns. And I really kind of tied that in together. So really there's multiple opportunities for each light. And everyone that uh, touched the crew uh, has a chance to input and become part of the team and participate in the survey. And then then what are the three general areas that you're looking at? Well, I meant the three general areas is there's four surveys generated for each flight, and obviously with the it's either referring hospital or EMS. That kind of leaves the one open and the patient and the receiving facility. I, I see. Okay. So those three areas that uh, you send out the, the survey. Right. Um, I know a lot of Rescue 911 is about accountability, especially accountability for the staff. Tell us how you address this. Well, what I think is really important, um, you know, especially with the changing environment out there and the increased competition and how programs overlap, really that uh, the accountability factor and the perception uh, of excellent service that the flight team gives to its customers is so important. And um, there was really no way actually to quantify those metrics to see how they were doing in the field. So by developing this and actually getting people scored on how they introduced themselves, um, their appearance, uh, packaging of the patients, keeping people informed, treating pain. Um, those are all important things that I had not been able to capture since essentially they're your 
you know, they're your eyes and your ears out there in the field, but there's no eyes and ears really keeping an eye on them, making sure that they are doing uh, the behaviors that you expect of them. And how, I, I know uh, in past years, uh, there's uh, Ames had a relationships with uh, Press Ganey, and I know there a lot of programs use that. What was the, what's the difference there uh, with the old Press Ganey survey? Well, you know, there's been Press Ganey, which discontinued doing pre-hospital care, and they did theirs right. by a web, uh, by a, using the standard uh, mail, mm-hmm. and a PRC, PRC still does pre-hospital, but they do um, uh, patients, and they use the telephone and use callback method. But what I wanted was was a mechanism to identify problems really immediately. And built into the RSQ 911 solutions, there is a trigger mechanism by if you look, rate someone below a certain scale, which can be chosen by the actual client. So if I say anybody that chooses likelihood to recommend is a eight or less out of a scale out of 10, or overall satisfaction with the service, seven or less, I could enter as many names as I want to and have people instantly emailed or text messaged that there is an issue going on uh, that can be addressed immediately. Uh, we recently had a case at 3.30 in the morning where somebody was unhappy. They gave us a low server rating below the pre-calculated, pre-chosen uh, score done by the service. And it was on 3.30 at night. By 7 o'clock in the morning, I had two people up there at the hospital dealt with the issue before people even went home from the night shift. Wow. So you don't wait six weeks in the, you know, to get a survey in the mail, which usually comes with your bill, uh, which people <laughs> yeah. don't. Uh, you know, it's not a great time to ask somebody a lot, a lot of questions when they're sitting there looking at the bill at the same time. But what's really interesting, though, is you get actually get feedback within three minutes of an interaction. And within 15 seconds of them inputting that data, if it's unacceptable to the standards that you want to have upheld and you can know about it, as many people can know about it as you want to, uh, from senior level to medical managers to regional directors, depending on what tier and how, how often they want to, uh, you know, to participate. Right. And, and this really goes into my next question, which is, you know, about, you know, I always have felt that uh, air medical transport or EMS is is really all about relationships and how important those relationships are. And that's the problem I saw, you know, when I um, uh, was at at programs that used Prescaney is that uh, you you hit the nail on the head, timeliness. You were not getting information. Sometimes it would be six weeks late and you realize that someone was really upset about a transport. And so it's very hard to differentiate between how did they feel about the service in general versus that one transport. And I think from what you're saying, you're honing in on that particular transport. Correct. And I think most of the literature has shown that you have 24 to 48 hours for service recovery mm-hmm. to really repair a relationship w- without intense effort. Uh, and just, uh, you know, getting there and, and getting everybody involved and getting the accurate information, which over time, you know, the information does diffuse and it's really hard to hard to pick up uh, really on some of the salient points that you need to know. So this has really been driven on that immediate service recovery, I would say, is probably the the driving feature of this uh, of this software. Yeah, especially, you know, if there is one bad transport, I mean, uh, I, I know from experience there, are, especially if you're in a uh, 
an area where they can choose another provider that they'll just say, oh, we're just not going to use them anymore. I'm, you know, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of the problems. And you don't even get the feedback. Correct. Um, and so this way you can, uh, you know, hone right in on that. You know, it's hard to find a place that they're, you know, the people don't have a choice anymore. I mean, the Venn diagrams really overlap here. Uh, and that's what really just makes this crucial. I mean, just one one or two of these interactions a year or opportunities a year afforded by this is is worth its weight in gold. Oh, absolutely. Because I mean, you can, I, I know uh, sometimes this can haunt a program for months, even years, uh, with lost referrals and then really bad word of mouth about the program. That, that really is. you got to just be able to stop it right at the beginning before things get worse and get magnified and throw it out of proportion. And, uh, um, you know, the EMS community, the referring communities, um, you know, these things like this gets, get started and they develop a life of their own. Right. Let's uh, get into a little of the nuts and bolts on how the program works. Uh, I know you've said it's web-based, but uh, why did you develop it this way and not as a, you know, standalone program that the client has running on their computer? Well, I think the beauty of this thing is, is it's, you know, is it's web-based and centralized and it allows us for the benchmarking, uh, allows us to take care of all the support um, and all the immediate feedback. And by having it, by using this type of model, it really satisfies really everything that we wanted the program to do. Do you, do you get some pushback from clients that kind of, you know, scratch their head, well, you know, our hospital, you know, we have to have all the data here. We don't want it someplace else. You know, I think that the service on demand model is really the way to go, really, with software anymore. Uh, and I really have never had any pushback. People want to do um, know more about the location of the servers, the encryption, uh, backups, if they can get data dumps, and how often. Mm -hmm. uh, those have been the most uh, common questions. Actually, uh, it's really a relief to tell somebody when I talk to their IT department or their program that all you need to have is you know, Internet Explorer, so, uh, and a printer, actually, to go ahead and print the forms out uh, that they're generated to hand out to the various uh, customers. So uh, they are very happy once we finish up that brief conversation. And then so you're using encryption uh, from a client's computer into the server, and, you know, I, I guess in general, how are you handling uh, HIPAA issues? Yeah, although we don't have any patient uh, information that's transferred, we went ahead and knowing that we're dealing with healthcare issues, just made sure we were HIPAA compliant. And it is double encrypted. Uh, and we have co-located servers. We actually have three uh, servers. Uh, you know, we have two co-located servers with an additional backup that sits on an, the Amazon server system. Mm -hmm. So things are really quite secure. And, uh, you know, we've had it looked at from, from, from a legal standpoint to make sure that we did um, satisfy all the requirements for that. And then, again, that's really going over the top because we don't have any patient-specific information. So it's really true cloud-type computing. I mean, you've, uh, Exactly. Um, are there ways uh, to customize the software for an individual client? And, you know, if so, what are some of the things that, people need to customize the software for? Well, that's, that's a question that's asked often. And uh, what we have, though, is a basic set of questions that we will not modify because that would 
um, destroy some of the or take away some of the opportunities we have for benchmarking. Mm -hmm. uh, but people are more, um, you know, do want to add on questions. Uh, we do respond to our customer. We're a customer service organization. Uh, so we will put any questions they want on there. Uh, it's been kind of interesting. Some people or flight crews will change aircraft or they'll be changing crew configuration or they may be adding a therapeutic modality or taking it off and want to get feedback long-term or even short-term. And it is easily customizable. We will add those questions on in addition uh, to the core set of questions, which the benchmarking will be done off of. I see. And is there a limit to the number of questions or is that just in your pricing model? Yeah, no, it's just a limit. It's usually just time and materials to, to build something like that, which is usually just a couple of hours to add to it. And then, I, and then I, too, I'm sure you would push back that you don't want to make the survey too long because you want people to fill it out. Correct. Yeah. Have, have any of the suggestions or features that people have wanted added or extra things, have you actually incorporated any of that into the software itself or into the program? Yeah, at first, um, you know, we want to give people what they want. We're very responsive. And, and dispatch um, was really requested more and more information about dispatch. Do we actually now separate out dispatch reports? So we have one out in each survey that deals with EMS or as far as the uh, receiving or referring hospital has three standardized dispatch questions, which you you know we've now obviously just made standardized. I see. Uh, but you know that was that was really not part of the initial setup of the service. But people were like, you know, we want to know how that interaction went with our dispatches. We want to know about the timeliness uh, of that response compared to what they were told, and we want to know if reasons were given or explanations were given as to why it it maybe didn't happen that way. Right. Well, that, so, that's, yeah, from experience, that's always, you know, they want to know the estimated time of arrival and they and uh, you know, referring, uh, especially EMS, you know, they they're there with the watch. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So. They don't want to hear it's five minutes and it's really going to be 25 okay. and, you know, without an adequate reason. Exactly. Well, tell us you talked a little bit about the benchmarking. Tell us about how that works and how, how is how is that beneficial to a client to have some benchmark? data on how they, you know, would compare? Well, I think it's not only useful from a service to kind of see where you stand, but it's really useful from even more, I'd say, within your program. Uh, because when you sit back and you evaluate people and and as far as an HR standpoint, or you even have somebody, you know, has poor interpersonal skills, it was always hard to have hard data or to keep somebody accountable or mm -hmm. or how to really encourage somebody they need to hardwire behaviors and change the way they act, even if they were excellent clinically. Uh, being excellent clinically, I think almost all pre-hospital uh, pre providers, especially critical care transport providers are, but I don't think they're all excellent when it comes to hardwiring interpersonal skills with uh, service excellence. and. Now, when you sit down with somebody every three months to do an evaluation or half a year, however often you do, you could pull out that, you know, you rank lowest on introducing yourself or giving a report or physical appearance or all these issues. And here's where you stand. Here's where your scores are. Here's where you need to be. Here's where you need to go. You could have, you know, metrics, parameters, set goals. Well, before it was like, well, just, you know, pick a friend to evaluate you or something like that. Uh, or just, um, you know, it was always somebody else's fault if there was a bad interaction on the scene. 
And really, you know, you never really had that hard data when it came down to sit somebody to do an evaluation. And you can't argue about this when you, you know, you have 25, 30, 40 surveys, a bunch of comments, and, and everybody's consistent and you're consistently low in multiple areas. And it's really been, um, it's really nice not to try to sit there with somebody and anecdotally give them an evaluation or a review. Right. And, and the, the other thing, crew members are very reluctant to talk about, you know, they know, I mean, I think everybody knows in, in all programs who the ones that do not give as good a customer service as they should, but no one wants to say it. Um, right. And so the, the survey tool comes out. But, but I guess, how do you differentiate if, you know, you're paired up with the person that doesn't give the the kind of customer service and that does that reflect on the other team member and how do you weed, Actually, weed that out? A, yeah, that's a fantastic question. And when we initially started this survey, the concept was they were going to get a survey to do each each crew member individually, but yeah. actually they evaluate them as a team and what it, now it makes them or encourages them to be a cohesive unit and it actually elevates the performance of each crew member because they're evaluated as one and each of those feeds their own database. So it really has developed a teamwork component. So now one doesn't have to be the nice person or have exceptional uh, interaction. The other one, um, maybe not so. They each have to elevate each other and they're counted. They, they actually get double scored. So it's really just, it goes into both of their databases. And we have found that to be an incredible driver because you, you know, you just have to elevate yourself because you have to work as a team. You're going to get scored as a team and promotes cohesiveness. And then that data shows up because if there is a problem, you're seeing that team member paired up and it might be different people, but then the score is consistently low. Do you see that it actually leads to some peer pressure? Yeah, you know, it's tough, just like it took a while, I think, for physicians uh, to see this data. You know, initially, you don't want to believe data. You know, that's classic. And then and then the transparency issue, and that's how something, how each program has to deal with how this data is displayed. Um, I think just as it was as being a physician, you know, you initially get it privately, and then it's it's publicly shown. Uh, and it's just a cultural change as you dedicate yourself to go on this journey. Uh, the software by no means is the solution. It's just part of the process uh, of actually, you know, going on a uh, committing yourself to service and operational excellence. But um, when people see these numbers, it's 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 quite interesting. And when they're consistently where they are, they 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 cannot argue with them. Do Do you see programs actually publishing it so that that you know a crew member can see where I'm in the top twenty five percent or I'm below the average? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yes, but it, that that does take time, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, I people could handle it obviously as they like, but I, I you know, you got to get comfortable with it and, and see where everybody stands. I think privately, and I think transparency and letting everybody see, and being accountable and transparent. I mean, that is what healthcare is all about in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. Well, you um, on the development of Rescue Nine One One, you had looked, I know, and this was from talking to you, I think even before you went into beta, that you wanted to work specifically with air medical rotor programs. Um, Are you now looking at expanding into fixed wing critical care ground and maybe even 911 ground and and non-emergent care? 
believe it. I mean, it, it was it really was um, an intention just to be rotor wing because that's what I was doing here in Columbia, and this really came out of a. You know, I built this really for myself, and then I realized a lot of people out there had the same problems. I could say almost everybody had the same problems or opportunities, however you want to call them, with their programs. So that's what kind of drove me more into making it a business. And then the critical care ground piece kind of grew on its own, and people wanted it because they had multiple uh, different types of transport at their uh, location. So we have, we're doing critical care uh Pick you critical care NICU. We're doing mobile coronary care units, um, and right now I received a couple of calls, and we're working on a modification of the survey uh, for just 911 and even convalescent transporters. So we are already into the 911 and uh, the the uh, ground uh, the ground environment, which uh, which is uh, again not where we plan on going, but we're a customer service. Um, company and that's what the customers want that so we're headed down that path yeah and you've, you've got a even a bigger universe of of clients too so and i i didn't realize that you had actually uh moved into that area yeah i've gotten phone calls from um states you know multiple states from all over the country just by word of mouth that have kind of heard us heard about us from one way or the other it was kind of interesting getting you know two or three ground Ground EMS calls from you know, places that are six, seven hundred miles away to really never, you know, advertising or talking much about that service. Mm -hmm. Well, that that segues into because I was going to ask you about marketing and how you're marketing the program. So word of mouth obviously is 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 big. Uh, you have a a nice uh, website, and I'll have the link in the the show notes. Um, I also. You know, the last time we saw each other in person was at the Air Medical Transport Conference in San Jose. California back in October, um, you know, how was that experience and how does that fit into your overall marketing of the product? Yeah, that was a fantastic experience. I'd never been on that side of the booth before. I've been to plenty of, <laughs> plenty of conventions and plenty of exhibit halls, but was never there the day early with uh, laying on the ground and taping things together. And, and uh, uh, it, it was just a great experience. Uh, we had a lot of people came by and, and talked to us. You know, the air medical industry is a, a nice small family. Uh, I got to see a lot of people. Wondered what the you know what the heck I was up to doing back there with my RSQ and my one shirt on uh, behind this booth. But uh, really, you know, the people were great out there. Everybody's hugging uh, everybody. But you know, most people stopped, uh, took a look at. What we had to offer um, gave some feedback as to what they thought about the program, and uh, it it was really good. Got a lot of got a lot of activity from being out there. It was uh, well worth the time and the effort, not just to see everybody, but actually from a business standpoint. That's great. So you did get some actual referrals for for business. Yes, we did quite a bit, uh -huh. quite a bit. That's great. Um, other things that you're doing as far as marketing. The service um, marketing. We we put a banner up on uh, the various different uh, flight uh, blogs, and have mm -hmm. gotten a few hits hits from that. Uh, we actually the the new Waypoint magazine actually we have a ad coming out in that, which is going to actually be a supplement to the next uh, Air Medical Journal that comes out. So that hasn't hit uh, hit the street yet. But I know everyone that went to uh, AMTC, I believe, and uh, all the 
members of AMP are going to get uh, this Waypoint magazine, which is a fairly new magazine that comes from the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it, it's a, we, we think it's a real, real uh, neat publication. And it gives you a chance to float the balloon relief internationally as only 23% of its readership, I believe, is here in the States. It's, um, now, is that an ad or is you actually doing an article? We're uh, initially doing an ad here right now, and hopefully they want to follow follow up with uh, new innovations uh, section that they're going to do on some areas in uh, critical care transport and uh, some things that came out of uh, AMTC, and they really thought that this was a nice new innovation that, that uh, they could highlight in the future. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I've, I've, I've not only that I you know like to, to talk to you, but uh, this is, it's a very innovative uh, product that I think can help a lot of the air medical programs who I'm targeting, you know, with this podcast. That's um, what we always stress, the, the ROI, you know, people always want to know what the ROI is, and ours is return on innovation is how we... Uh, how we phrase it because it uh, it truly is innovative and it truly do get a good return on it. Yep. You have uh, built in some safety features and kind of a feedback closure loop. Uh, kind of elaborate on what what those are about. Well, the, the two kind of separate issues: the feedback closure loop being uh, affiliated only with with came certified programs and the. Uh, and going through, I think we've been through four came site reviews, you know, closing that loop is really important. Mm-hmm. It's important not only to, you know, know you've wrapped up a situation and, and it's closed and move on, but even to go back over time and look at different problems you've had and how they've been handled. Uh, we were finding that we were finding opportunities for improvement, actually meeting up with people, rectifying situations, clarifying issues, but there wasn't any documentation of it. So we developed an area in the software that once uh, an issue is closed or there is acted upon, we can go back in and actually enter that data in there, so it's logged and stored, and uh, it, it's you know it's permanently permanently now kept and tucked away instead of just being kind of just some nebulous. You made a phone call, everything is okay, and there's nothing to document that it happened. From the safety standpoint, you know, with safety being such a big issue. And we spend so much time out there doing training for uh, EMS and for fire and setting up landing zones that uh, we looked at this as an opportunity to to have the input of those people into our safety uh, program or build a safety flight assessment into the RSQ 911 software. And actually, if, if um, people that see the aircraft land or have been taught any landing zone procedures or policies and see any deviation from that or any area of concern, we had now added a column where they could fill out a safety risk assessment where they feel like something was done that they had not, uh, they didn't agree with or they had been told shouldn't have been done before. And that causes immediate notification also to the base manager and a lead pilot. And we put all the upper level administrative people into the safety risk assessment. There is no tiered let to that uh, box. Once something is entered, it goes to everybody because we take that very seriously. I see. So this fits really nicely into the safety committee, quality improvement committee. I mean, it, you're, you're getting that feedback and you're closing the loop on each of these. Right. And we really thought that that was the one, you know, so much is going on with safety that's fantastic for the industry and we all know we need it. 
Uh, but I sat back and, you know, where were we getting input from people at the scene setting up the LZ or at the hospital that were uh, out there uh, waiting on the patient? Um, you know, we spent a lot of time teaching them, uh, but we never uh, have had a mechanism actually to gain some of their input of, of things that maybe we're, we're not practicing what we're preaching. Mm-hmm. Well, y- y- let's go up. 50,000 feet. I mean, how does Rescue 911 fit into the really the overall value equation for healthcare itself? I mean, you know, right now, you know, we've got obviously a huge political battle going on with healthcare reform. Hopefully we'll have something that comes out of that. And, you know, also the different reimbursement models that are being looked at and adding on safety and outcomes uh, metrics, you know, with through CMS. Um, You know, I know pre-hospitals maybe not always on the forefront of that, but how do you feel that the program can help in that area? Right. Well, I think you know everything is going to be value-driven uh, in the future, and mm-hmm. and um, really everything, and, and also things that happen higher up as far as hospitals and and uh, healthcare eventually rolls down into the pre-hospital environment or critical care transport environment. But you, you look at the value equation of of quality and um, of access and safety and all those initiatives, you know, divided by price. Well, you know, a lot of those issues on the top, that numerator there have to do with perception Uh, and, you know, patients' perception, pre-hospital providers, referring and receiving facilities, perception of quality and actually the quality you provide and measured quality that can be improved will improve the value of your service. Yeah, yeah. So we want to get that numerator up there, and uh, that's the goal here. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I couldn't uh, not uh, ask you some technical questions because you know what a techie I am. <laughs> um, but uh, what, what's a client need? You know, so if you know I'm a client, what do I need at my location to um, have this software up and running? Any special hardware? Any special software? Absolutely nothing. Just a printer and uh, an internet connection, and you know, Internet Explorer or Firefox, Mozilla, and you're ready to go. Wow. And uh, how? One of the questions I had was, okay, so I'm an EMS provider. I get this survey, so I go back to base. How hard is it for me to? to input data. Is it the same thing? I just, it's just all web-based from there too? Correct. Uh, we hand people a customized card and uh, mm-hmm. that's another thing to know about this system. RSQ911 kind of runs in the background. So everybody that becomes a client of us, it's personalized with your logo and actually uh, pictures of your aircraft or critical care transport ambulance or 911 based ambulance. So it all looks and feels like it is your own. Uh, but you have a, a piece of paper that's handed to you with an access code. It has a URL on there, which you will enter. Uh, a lot of people just go ahead and set that up as their favorites that use to get uh, service often. And they type it in, they enter the code, and it will take you right to a survey. There are about eight to 10 questions, depending on which type of provider you are. Then you can also enter in if you want to be contacted for further information and the safety risk assessment. And then you go ahead and submit the survey. And then after you submit it, there's a customized thank you note from that provider from filling out the survey. 
again, people could add URLs to their, where they can go back to their own flight team there. They could put whatever pictures they want or any personalized notes that they want to put on that thank you page for filling out the survey. So actually it looks and feels like the client's program. Correct. And, uh, yeah. And then what's the percentage number of um, surveys that are returned? I mean, do you have a, an idea? I mean, what, what's your hit rate on this? You know, I, that is probably, you know, other than what do we need and and you know how much does it cost? People always want to know what is the you know what is the end you know what are you getting back from people and what 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 do I need to get back and and uh, it's a very interesting it's a very complicated subject. Uh, uh, some services we have it seems like the PICU NICU uh, get a lot of uh, of parents um, parent family interactions uh, to filling out the survey. Um, sometimes you know we're in some programs six to eight percent sometimes some programs are having one survey one type of survey filled out per every three flights um it's uh we're working on some tools to how to hand off the questionnaire and how to even hardwire some of those behaviors uh, we've also added in some features where if you have that person's uh email information or even that the hospital EDs or the EMS agency has a uh, supervisor email address where we can set out reminders at three, five, and seven days, and they can hyperlink right back into the survey if they don't fill it out. Um, and then it also goes back into, you know, what is that magic number? And, and you know, for EDs getting patients surveys back, it's, it's, it's very low. We get 8 to 12% back in my ED of 80,000 patients. And some people say we only need 127 surveys every quarter, which is 20,000 patients. Uh, and the way I look at it is, is, is two different ways that if you allow me to kind of ramble on here for a second. Yeah. Number, number one, I have found that N equals one is crucial. If you have a high volume service that's calling you 10 or 15 times a month, that one that you bump out one of their medics in the middle of the night over an airway issue and they don't call you for six months and you have a chance to capture that and, and repair that damage in the first six hours after it happens, after losing, without losing 50 calls, that's uh, that's pretty significant. And again, we're also looking at the opportunity. Uh, you know, every time you hand one of these surveys off to somebody and say, you know, we want you to participate in our program, we want your feedback, uh, we want to incorporate you into our team, into our family, and provide excellent care that there's a lot to be said for actually just the, the opportunity or the invitation says a lot about your service. And uh, sometimes we sit here and split hairs, well, I got seven and a half and I wanted, you know, 8.2% returns. But I think you really have to go back sometimes and, and realize, you know, a couple of these, you know, maybe one of these uh, is worth is worth it for a year or just even all the opportunities you're given may just be worth it. And um, it really is tough. We've met with statisticians and we've went over, uh, you know, flight volumes and power and, you know, what do you need to have? And uh, uh, it, it's it's more nebulous than you think coming up with that magic N. Mm -hmm. is, is it, I, I realize that then it's real important for the crew to make sure that they do hand off these surveys. And are you tracking that you know by different crew members on the response rates when they're on 
Um, that is an excellent question. And as we have developed some relationships with some charting companies right now, we're working on actually data getting fed into the system when they do their charting, which will create an XML dump and actually populate the RSQ911 uh, software so we know that that, um, that that survey is out there and is a live one. And we are about to have the ability soon to be able to look at that. A couple other ways we looked at too, we're even having the following crew is kind of how you do peer review, but you know, the crew coming on, going back and calling back and um, just giving people feedback and making sure they got a survey. Uh, because one of the concerns we had that people weren't gonna hand them out if there was a bad interaction. And uh, we're now uh, making sure that we're gonna capture that data in the future here. Yeah, that's real important to to have that and then hold the staff members accountable um, because, you know, you always have the excuse, well, we're too busy, you're adding on more things to, to work. Right. Um, I remember you telling me that your original idea was to have a, like a little card with the number and you changed from that. I believe that was from your beta testing because people would lose the card, so you put it on a full sheet. Yeah, our, our goal was to have almost like a neat little business card or even we thought to save paper that we could actually put all four on one sheet and you could potentially cut it or fold it. But when people go ahead, we pre-print these sheets and they just wanted to go ahead and stuff folders and get ready just in case they got multiple flights back to back mm-hmm. that they were all ready. And they found out that it was easy just to hand this to the, especially EMS, you know, right in the middle of a, a busy, hectic, um, scenario where you're doing a patient handoff, it only takes a fraction of a second to hand somebody that sheet of paper, and they expect it now. Right. Uh, even when, even when they come into the ED, it's you know they want to know where the survey is. Uh, so and it's easy to kind of grab a hold of that eight and a half by eleven sheet, regular sheet of paper, kind of fold it up, crumple it up, put it in your pocket, and when you get back, um, you know, back to the base or with wireless and everybody now, sometimes their EMS will fill them out right in the unit. Um, and the the hospitals will you know normally walk over to the computer once the patient goes to CAT scan or goes upstairs to the operating room and and uh, we have some actually some wow buttons what they're called but it's actually a uh, a um, mouse with a URL pre-programmed in it that plugs into a USB port which they could actually hit it and take it right to the data entry page of the website. I see. You could even uh, or I guess you could even do it from a handheld. Um, yes, unit. Yeah. That, that is some of our things we're looking at right now, making a uh, smartphone platform base where they can actually do it from the phone. And even uh, looking right now at the prevalence of iPhones and whether to do an iPhone app, because it seems like uh, I know, especially around where we work here, iPhones have pretty much taken over. So we're, we're investigating that a little bit. We thought it might be neat to, to offer that. Might look at uh, Android, too. They seem to be gaining a lot of ground also. Uh-huh. With the, um, well, I'm curious, you know, because you had said that this, the survey goes out to, you know, EMS, referring hospitals, physicians, receiving uh, patients. What group has a higher return rate? Uh, the highest would be receiving and EMS. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I would have thought EMS. I didn't think receiving. That's interesting. And surprisingly, physicians uh, fill them out a lot on the receiving end. Huh. Had, had, would you have guessed that before you started? No, I, I, no, I really wouldn't have. I knew EMS. Yeah, that's what I... I we would have wanted the input, but... Uh, 
you know, and I think a neat part about this and what's really nice too are the positive comments we get. And I think people got to realize that this just isn't, uh, you know, two by four, you just hit somebody over the head with this tool, that there are so many people and, and so many of the people that have this service that like to say thank you and, and what a great job you did and what a difference you made. Uh, I want people to realize from the HR standpoint, there's 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 80% of good stuff that comes out of here, uh, but we don't need to tolerate the 20% of the bad, though, either. Mm-hmm. Well, there seems to be, you know, I, I know probably crew members are a little apprehensive uh, about this tool because it does have huge HR implications, and especially if a team says, you know, this will be part of your uh, performance appraisal. I mean, I, and I guess you can look at that. I mean, it's a good opportunity for a, a team member, too. Um, so, you know, how, how do you tie those results to team members? Well, I mean, that would be organization specific, mm-hmm. you know, on how, how they want to take those parameters and what percentiles they they think are acceptable. Uh, and um, I mean, do I you have suggestions uh, for them? It Actually, we haven't came up with any hard guidelines. We just really um, our, our biggest suggestions is, is just looking for improvement really than actually setting certain numbers or kind I of see. boxing people in. Uh, is just, you know, how much do you want somebody to improve by? Uh, and uh, whether you want to just, whether they improve just amongst their old score or compared, you know, benchmarking-wise to above everybody else. But uh, initially, we, we encourage people to improve their own number because hopefully everybody else is getting better also. Because well, if you're not yeah, getting least, better, you're probably getting worse. Yeah, at least get an indicator of what, the number is and then where that right. number is moving. Yeah. And especially I would think the benchmarking would be mm-hmm. a nice tool for people. We've changed a lot of behavior just by the fact that they know they're being measured. Yeah. You yeah, know, not, right. not even having the number, just knowing the, that there is uh, in, an accountability piece out there. And uh, you know, it's, it's, it's was met with a little bit of resistance at first, uh, but people really do now enjoy getting the feedback and, and, you know, especially the nice stuff, the nice comments and knowing that, you know, that most of them do have a lot of positive things to say and that it makes a gratifying job even even more so. Mm-hmm. Did, did you find that in the beta testing when you did that at LifeNet of South Carolina, that um, you had staff members come up after and say, hey, this really is a good tool? Yeah, I mean, there were some, some touching touching surveys and even of some some family members of trauma patients and some family members of some inner facility critical care transports that they really told them they made a difference in, in just what it meant for them to be there and for a couple things they might have said that they didn't think was important but may have even changed some of their lives. Um, it, it was very powerful. And, very and powerful. without the tool, they might not have ever received that feedback. Correct. Yeah. Well, can you talk about some of the clients that you currently have? Are you keeping that hush well, right now? Well, we're really busy right now. I could, I, I'll tell you, we're trying to get 48 aircraft online here probably in the next four to six weeks. And, oh, boy. And looking at staggering those right now, and, and it's going to be a real nice geographic uh, representation. Uh, it'll be coast to coast, and, and we're doing that in the interim. We're doing some critical care ground and uh, working with two 911 services, kind of the beta that right now, mm-hmm. uh, and look at um, you know look at question modification for that too. Uh, also looking at uh, you know the fixed wing component. We'll have a few of those uh, up and running here soon, 
and even got some specific questions on uh, different services that you know may vend the program and and some questions that they may want to ask specifically about that that had never even altered my mind entered my mind before yeah but you know by by being a customer service oriented organization we will get people what they want and uh, we're committed to that and uh, so it's exciting to hear all these different uh opportunities out there in the different requests and, and it's exciting for us to give people what they want well i know uh in seeing you at uh, amtc that uh, you're not just doing this yourself because you've got uh, a lot of other things that uh, keep you busy too tell us about uh, the team that you've put together for rescue 911 well i have a fantastic uh, group with me uh dr pat hunt is really my right hand man and he is an emergency physician in my group and he got his MBA at Duke, and he is uh, he is the IT brains behind the operation, and huh. he's a he works 23 and a half hours a day, uh, seven days a week, 365. Uh, he's been a great help. Laura Dean is an emergency physician who just graduated from our program here, and is now is in San Antonio, and uh, actually I believe she just got an EMS directorship job today down there. Uh, after briefly being out of residency, and she's fantastic, and she was a paramedic and a dispatcher prior to going into emergency medicine, so has a great feel for it. Um, we've also used the customer services slash guest relations personnel uh, from our hospital that deals with all the customer and physician satisfaction surveys to help us um, help us. Um, keep us in line with the questions uh, and making sure that they ask exactly what they're supposed to and they're intended to to measure to, uh, uh, the right metrics. And finally, we have uh, one of our flight team members here, um, Pate Cox, and I wanted to get him involved really from the, from the street level to get a lot of feedback out there from what it's like to hand these off. How did it go? How smooth was it at the hospital? Are they having trouble? entering information or getting it in. We've had to go to some facilities and get IT clearance to have URL access to RSQ 911, so they didn't think it was video poker uh, or something else <laughs> like that that the staff was playing. So it was nice to have somebody kind of like a, on the advisory board that was a frontline worker that could bring back that information. Um, so really, we tried to encompass the entire spectrum. Yeah, yeah. And then your... Um IT services, where are those located? I mean, where do you have the servers? Uh, they're in Dallas, mm -hmm. and that's part of uh, uh, Dr. Hunt is also, um, he did a startup called PSH Group, which is uh, does uh, deals with web-based uh, technology, and he runs a, a shift scheduling software program and some various other uh, I see. Mm -hmm. endeavors. So he's, he's, uh, he's a you know, very entrepreneur-oriented and... Uh, is is what he does and what I have kind of perfectly meshed into that with him having the IT background and uh, myself having the passion for the service and operational excellence. It was kind of like the perfect uh, perfect marriage. I think I told you I'm I'm actually in Dallas. For my uh, daughter's graduating from uh, college, and then also a uh, a uh, uh, party for uh, their engagement. She's uh, getting married, so uh, I'll have to slip out and go see these <laughs> servers to make sure they're HIPAA compliant and let our listeners know that. So. <laughs> uh, well, Bill, it's, uh, it's been great having you on the podcast. I know uh, from uh, having uh, known you throughout the years now that uh, you always have your wheels turning for 
probably further improvements to this program or even perhaps a, a spinoff uh, or maybe even something totally new. Uh, so uh, I guess what's next? Any big plans for 2010 that you care to share with the audience? Well, I'm just really excited about, you know, the way it's going and the way it's growing and, and hoping I can keep up with everything and give everybody what they want. Uh, I really love talking about customer service and talking about hardwiring behaviors uh, for service excellence. And, and hopefully I would get a chance to get out there and spend some time with the clients and and, and uh, doing some lecturing and, 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 and help people improve the care that we provide uh, you know, themselves and the air medical community in general. Mm-hmm. Well, it's such a compelling story because I know, as I said earlier, this this has truly been your uh, vision, and it's just so wonderful to see this coming to uh, fruition now that it's uh, it's really working, and I'm sure that you will be on the speaker's circuit uh, about this as you get more and more data. It's just really exciting for me. It's uh, I enjoy it. it. It's not work at all. It's a it's, uh, it's just a pleasure to be involved with this and working with people and meeting people and working together on this to make it better and to them make to make them better and for them to help make what we have to offer better. Right. Well, Bill, thanks so much for taking the time. I know we had a little bit uh, crazy scheduling uh, your schedule with all the meetings and stuff you go to, and I so I appreciate you actually sitting down with me for uh, uh, I think it's about an, an hour and a half from some of the pre-set up that we had to do in, in the podcast. So thanks so much for taking the time. It's been great. I look forward maybe to coming back next year and telling you where I'm at. That sounds great. <laughs> Enjoy the holidays, Ed. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. And I do hope you will come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com and also on iTunes. Information about the Facebook group and Twitter account can also be found at the site. Remember, if you would like to become a sponsor and or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 206-350-0278. Special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. Until the next episode, take care, fly safe, and a very happy holiday season. 